you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who have created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to support charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories from the spaces where endowments and community intersect, because it's good to be well endowed. And on this episode, we're thrilled to be launching a new special series produced by Hunter and Jacqueline Cardinal. Hunter and Jacqueline embody what it means to be community builders. As the co-founders of Nahewin, they work with organizations to reinvigorate the spirit of treaty by implementing Indigenous principles into everyday processes and business practices. Hunter is a graduate of the U of A's Fine Arts Acting Program. He's a regular fixture in Edmonton's theatre scene and has performed in plays across Canada and off-Broadway in New York. Jacqueline is a serial entrepreneur who owns and operates a number of companies geared towards equipping communities with the means to support themselves and each other. Her expertise has taken her around the world to spread her message of relationship building between Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities, including twice at the Standing Senate of Canada Committee on Aboriginal Peoples and at the Kakahashi Project in Japan. Both have been selected as Avenue Magazine Top 40 Under 40, and their list of accolades are long. But they will be the first to tell you that any of the personal successes they enjoy were only made possible by the communities and people who helped lift them up. And that's the focus of this special series the communities and people who have helped prominent Edmontonians along their journeys. Here's Hunter with the first of this six-part series. Tanse, hello. Welcome to It Takes a Community, a well-endowed podcast series about inspirational leaders and the communities of people, places, and ideas that have supported them along the way. I'm your host, Hunter Cardinal, and from a young age, I was taught that my people, the Nehiao, or Cree people, have always understood ourselves as bound together in a vast web of interconnectedness. As my career as an actor and storyteller developed, I began to cross paths with more and more incredibly accomplished people. And when asked, almost every single person time and again echoed the voices of my elders in crediting their successes to their networks of support. This podcast is my own quest to explore what it means to succeed and support each other in succeeding in an inherently interconnected world and learn how it truly does take a community. I am stoked to introduce our very first guest, Paul Bellows, who you may have heard as the founder of Yellow Pencil, a digital agency that works with clients like the City of Edmonton, BC Transit, and the Edmonton International Airport. I, however, first heard of Paul after my sister Jacqueline burst into our office after being introduced to him at an event, telling me that I just had to meet this guy. And I understood why almost as soon as we sat down for the first of many conversations over early coffees at Credo downtown. Paul is a multi-talented, generous, incredibly witty person that embodies leading by example. And I was over the moon when he agreed to come onto this podcast to talk about his journey and the community he depends on. In the conversation you're about to listen to, we talk about his love for music, his entrepreneurial roots, mindfulness, and how his family taught him to think about problems and keep him accountable to his own values. I learned a ton and I hope you do too. 
the first time that you and I sat down together uh, with my sister, I think it was last year, I was just so um, taken back by how present you were for that conversation. It was kind of just like being seen for the first time and then being like, what? How is that even possible? I guess like starting off, was that always a thing that you did? Like, did that come from like growing up? Like, how 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 do you do that? Where did well, that come from? Well, it's an interesting question. So I sort of think back about like my own history and kind of you know, everything I have I have inherited, you know, from someone, um, whether that be directly from my family or from the country I live in or from you know the, the land I'm on or from other business leaders. There's very little of anything that I could take really claim you know maybe I've packaged it in a unique way um, but it's not really of me or from me mm-hmm. um, I also don't really believe in zero-sum games you know I don't really believe that you know while I respect that there are limits on environment and our capacity in the world um, that we have to respect I also don't believe that we're all fighting over just a single dollar and we have to divide it you know the more that I get the less you get I think we can multiply the impact of society we can't care for a lot of people and I suppose just thinking about how I how I grew up and what I was raised with, um, you know, because that's the most obvious place of inheritance. You know, my my mother was an academic and my dad was a Baptist minister. Yeah, you know, let's go back there. So like we're going yeah. all the way there. Yeah, yeah, let's go back. But you know, my 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 family. So on my dad's side, you know, they were like absolute poverty-stricken Ukrainian farmers who came to Canada because they were they were facing religious prosecution in the Ukraine, and it was also um, you know. They came over just before the Russian Revolution. They sensed that things were not going to be good for a different group of people there during that time. And they realized they had to get out. And they came to Canada because they could get land here mm-hmm. without a lot of capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything. I've been back to my grandfather, you know, my grandfather, my grandmother's, well, great-grandfather, great-grandmother's plot of land. And the, you know, the falling down shack, you know, it's, it looks, you know, it's the barn that they keep like a piece of equipment in now. It's just a little shed. And... They lived with 12 kids in this little wooden shack that they built with, you know, a, a wood stove and nothing else until they built a bigger house. And just looking at how, you know, my, my, my father's people came to Canada and what they built. And, and, you know, they built a strong farm. They sent their kids to university from university. My father got into, you know, became a Baptist minister and then moved into more administrative roles. And he built his career. They got us into school. Um, and got us into university and helped us in any way they could. And, you know, I look at what I have just as a, as a person who has been educated, you know, from my father's side. Um, I just have this great legacy of, of, of people who just built things from nothing, you know. So mm-hmm. um, I you know, started with nothing and anything you've had has been created by what's been handed to you and then kind of what you've done with it. Yeah. And then on my mother's side, you know, her family came from Ireland. And, you know, again, there, there was uh, my, my great-grandfather on my mother's side was a police officer. So the complicated history of they came via Hong Kong. So he was a police officer, a British police officer in Hong Kong. So that has layers of complexity to it (laughs) as an imperialist force, you know, (laughs) occupying a country. And my relatives were, you know, that's an interesting thing to have as my family legacy. Um, But when they came, you know, they they moved to Leduc and they started small and they built a farm and they they grew from there. And my, my, my mother's father was just, he just worked for the city of Edmonton. That was what he did forever, you know, and he was, he just went to work every day. He was famous for never having taken a sick day. Uh, he was just a really hard worker. And then my mother took that bit of DNA or whatever it is, or that cultural expectation, and she went to school with it. And she became an academic powerhouse. She has a PhD in, uh, you know, 
power and gender empowerment. Um, she is a deep thinker about people in society. Um, she's an extremely strong feminist, so she's challenged me in ways to think about what my role is in the world of creating a more equitable world. So I, I come from this, you know, from, at a DNA level, I, I come from these, these people that uh, just worked hard and were committed to social justice in all parts of their life. You know, my father professionally, um, you know, say, say what you will about the, the church, you know, there is a strong, you know, at least the intent of someone should be who gets into that should be to benefit society and do some social good. And so I have that. And then my mother just, you know, like, like focused on like, like gender issues and, and, and power in society and, and, and working hard to communicate and teach and pass on, you know. So that's where I come from. That's, that's what I'm built out of. And I was raised by those two people. Um, so I think I entered the work world not as an, you know, I became an entrepreneur somehow. But I didn't really, I didn't really come from business people. You know, I didn't come from people with money. I didn't come from, from wealth. I didn't come from a lot. I came from privilege in that I came from a loving household. But I didn't really come from a, a household where money was particularly important to anybody. And it wasn't particularly important to me. Um, I started thinking I was going to be a musician. I started thinking yeah, I was going to yeah. be an artist. And I spent a lot of years pursuing that. And I, and I still love art and music. But I, the only real expectation I built for myself was make things that people want. <laughs> you know. So was no. that like a theme of, of making things that people want in music and also later yeah. in business? You know, as I got into like songs, like what, what you're interested in songs is songs that an audience will, will react to, that they'll respond to. You know, something that creates an emotional impact or or something that people fall in love with that becomes important to them. That's what you're trying to create. And as I got into business, making websites for initially just all arts organizations, that's, that's where I started. I just wanted to do things that added value to the world, that, were, that people enjoyed, that were useful, that were helpful. That, that was really the starting point for me. Who, who instilled that for you growing up? And, and where do you think that that kind of came from? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I didn't really, you know, as I entered sort of the work world, I, I tried some jobs. I... At 15, I got a job at McDonald's. It was sort of my first real job other than helping out at the family farm in the summer or, you know, just little odd jobs. And I just really didn't like working in, a, in that kind of an environment. I mean, uh, also like greasy and hot and noisy. But, you know, just sort of working in a, in a big business, a restaurant, a, a, you know, highly structured environment. So I, I bought a, or I was given from a, from a cousin who, who was discarding it, an old racket stringing machine. So my first business, um, it was in Calgary. I started a little company called Strings Attached, and I'd go to all the high schools in Calgary, and I'd take all their broken badminton rackets, and I'd restring them for less than the cost of buying a new racket. Now, looking back on the math of my business, I think my parents were buying all the supplies for me. So I think they were just doing it to keep me out of trouble. It was so really subsidized. I was a highly <laughs> subsidized business, so a very yeah. Canadian thing, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, Part of our great democratic socialist tradition. Yeah, the um, bank of mom. Yeah, yeah you know, totally. it's, it's, where, it's where you start. But I did learn some things about, like, how to, how to pitch to somebody and kind of how to sell. And, like, I needed to show up on time. I needed to do what I said I was going to do. I needed to have transparency in my billing. Cause otherwise, they would call me on it if it wasn't <laughs> clear. I'm paying you how much for what? Or if the quality wasn't there, I got challenged on it. So I learned a couple of lessons maybe at the age of 16 about just the absolute basics of business, which is provide a service that people need. And then actually provide that service at the highest quality possible huh. and understand your numbers, you know. So that's where I, you know, I, I had that at one point. It was really accidental. I just stumbled really? into this entrepreneurial moment. I tried it. It was great. And I, I, I was sort of ruined forever for working for other people. You know, my motto eventually became, if I'm going to work for idiots, I'm going to be the idiot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So 
so you you started creating music um, from this need of creating something that people want or need. Yeah, I, I you know I just had, I had this one summer where I went to work at a camp and I was just surrounded by a bunch of musicians all summer. I had a guitar. I'd been playing a little guitar. I brought it to camp. I was a, working as a janitor at the camp, and everyone was playing and writing songs. And it just no one ever told me that that was a thing that not everyone did. You know, I thought, well, I have a guitar and I I just start it. And then people started singing some of the songs I was writing, and then people, some people recorded some of the songs I was writing. And I really, I mean, I, that was just a gift of I was, I didn't know that not everyone could just do that. And, and maybe it's true that everyone just can. And I chose to for some odd reason because I didn't have the fear instilled in me that I couldn't do that. I'd kind of had grown up in a church where everyone just sang and did things. Mm. And, you know, I, that was another gift I was given. I'm not involved in the church at this point at, at all, but I do look back at that and say, well, that was a gift to me. There were some gifts I got from that community of, of yeah, stand up on stage and sing something if you want to stand up on stage and sing something. No one's stopping you, you know. Yeah. Um, just just do the things you want to do. Express yourself, you know, find your voice. Is there like um, an early Paul memory of when you first did that? Well, I, I can remember doing it poorly a few times, for sure. <laughs> okay, paint you know? it. Who was well, there? What was going on? Well, Upstage, downstage. I was in, in junior high, I played the trumpet in, in the jazz band. Yeah. I was not the best trumpet player, which is an under, understatement. <laughs> um, but I did get into the jazz band, and we did go to nationals. And in grade nine, we actually won national Canada's national stage band competition, which that year was at Expo 86. So I even went to Expo 86. It was a very no big, big deal. moment. And then uh, the, the church that my family went to said, hey, we would like a trumpet player to, to play in the morning with the organ. And, you know, would you like to do that? And I started performing in church. And then someone asked me to do a solo one year. And I thought, I'm sure I can do that. And I just didn't practice a lot. And I did a really, really bad job. And then I got nervous. And when you're holding a trumpet and you start to get nervous and your hands start to shake, it sounds really, really bad. So there's just this skinny grade nine kid standing on stage thinking he knows how to play because he's, you know, playing in this jazz band and doing all these things. And they're just being alone on stage and, you know, then the, everyone gets quiet and then you start to play and you just, you just make bad sounds for five minutes and then leave. Like it was not <laughs> enjoyable for anyone, least of all for me. And, you know, just sweat running down my back and I realized I'm really just embarrassing myself. And, and that taught me something about practice yeah. and rehearsing <laughs> and getting good at something before you show up in front of people and do it which I think probably just that fear of, you know, not wanting to be that guy again uh, probably drives a lot of what I do. What, what were some, uh, some thoughts from other people, like your family, the people at the church, hearing that? Like, oh, everyone was very encouraging. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that wasn't that bad. Yeah. You know, as soon as they say it's not that bad, you, you know how bad it was. <laughs> You're just you like, know, wow. That that's what they lead with. It's not as bad as you think it was. Well, actually, maybe it's worse then. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's worse. Yeah. So, Everyone was very kind. Oh, my gosh. So so you, you picked the guitar, though. And I'm curious, mm. like, what what was it about the guitar? that? Um, guitars are a little cooler than trumpets at a party. Or, you know, no one goes to a party and, and wants to hear a, a guy trumpet. whip out his yeah. trumpet. Yeah, you know? play Wonderwall. Maybe also not, yeah, totally, right? <laughs> On your trumpet. Yeah, yeah. Who here likes Louis Armstrong? <laughs> um, <laughs> in junior high, high school, not not the coolest thing. So guitar was just a little more accessible. And it was also, I just, I just gravitated towards it. I just kind of fell in love with guitar. Um, my mom had an old guitar around the house from years ago. I picked it up, and it just it felt like a thing that I just knew how to play and wanted to play. And, and so I, I just never stopped. Who, there. who played it? Who used to play it? Uh, both my mom and dad played a little guitar. My dad right. was also a banjo player. Oh. I didn't become a banjo player, but that could have been in my future. Yeah. 
Oh, but they it still could be. Music. It still could be. Yeah. And I still could find the inner banjo player buried deep within me, but the odds are not high. Um, <laughs> Unless you practice. Right? You know what? Exactly. Yeah. That is the lesson coming full circle right now. Yeah, yeah. Like, just put the time in. Yeah, exactly. I could be Edmonton's next great banjo so player. So whose guitar like was it? It was an old guitar, was it? It's just it's something my mom had inherited from somebody. It had just always been around the house. I'd never picked it up, and just one day I picked it up and thought I can play this a lot. And then someone I knew just found a guitar somewhere, just some beat-up old guitar. And they said, hey, you've been playing a little guitar. Would you like this guitar? And they just gave it to me. And then that was my guitar. And then I had a guitar. And it was my greatest possession for, for years. And eventually I bought my own new guitar. You know, saved up, worked, prepared a bunch of badminton rackets and, yeah. and, and bought a guitar. It was in, in, and then I just started writing and I started performing. And it just it never occurred to me that that wasn't a thing you could do. But I also wasn't really performing in, in any commercial environment. I, I ended up moving up to Winnipeg to go to university. I was going to the University of Manitoba. And there was a little pizzeria just down the street from where I lived in, in Winnipeg. And, and they had open stage nights. And I showed up and I thought, I wonder if anyone, you know, I had grown up in sort of safe church community where everyone was happy and encouraging and it was a very safe environment. I thought, I wonder what will happen if I walk into just a place where other musicians go and, and how will I measure up? You know, so just I got the courage under me one night and I, I went out. It was a Sunday night and I played and, and I was accepted by the community there. It was great. Mm. And a couple of people there were professional musicians in, in Edmonton. You know, the old crash test dummies folks who were like, this is back in the 90s. So they were like the cool band. They would go out there. And a guy who's here now, who's become a lifelong friend, Ben Suras, was was going there. And, and he made me start opening for him and said, you got to come along. You got to play. People need to hear these songs. And, and a lot of people encouraged me, just said, yeah, this is, this is real music you're making. This is worth listening to. And they got me opening spots and they helped me get shows yeah. and really just showed me the ropes. So, I'm really interested in what that range of encouragement looked like from mm. the different people that were there. Like, was it um, big gestures of like, there's an open mic, we're short a player, come on up? Or was it something small? And if it was, what, what did that look like? Well, the small things are more impactful than the yeah. big things, right? Like th those small things. And that's where, you know, you get into something that, that feels touchy-feely, like microaggressions, you know, or something like that. You mm. know, culturally, this, this thing we're becoming aware of, of all the ways you subtly discourage somebody that can have important impacts. And I think, those tiny doors that opened of just, you know, people clapping genuinely after a song, you know, and I realized they're not faking it. That was real, you know, or just someone coming up, just not even talking to me about the music, but talking to me as a peer, you know, after I play a song in front of people. You know, somebody I respect who talks to me like I'm a peer and thinking, oh, I've just been accepted, <laughs> you know, those tiny little moments, you know, the, the unstated thing, the thing that, that they didn't even think that they were doing, you know, or do necessarily consciously, you know, those were the things that made me realize I'd been accepted by a community. And that was, wow. that was a powerful moment for me. And, and the, the Bella Vista Pizzeria in Winnipeg will forever be a part of my personal growth as a human. Because it, it was the one place where I realized the wider world has a place for me. There is a community that will accept who I am and what I'm trying to do. And it gave me courage to do all kinds of things in the future. Who was the person who best made you feel like a peer? Definitely Ben Suris, really? you know, who's still performing in town today. is a great musician, a, a, a children's book author, a, a visual artist. He's just doing all these great things in town. But he was the guy who said, what you do is real. It's legitimate. He was on CBC radio at the time and playing festivals and playing in all the bars. And everyone knew him. And he was a friend to everybody. So to have acceptance from him and validation from him 
that to me, I, I can just remember the moment. And then he took me on a tour with him and, you know, he's part of the reason I ended up in Edmonton. We did this tour. He introduced me to all the Edmonton people, you know, Bill Bourne and Shannon Johnson and all these people who are like the luminaries of the scene in the 90s. And again, I got accepted here, you know, uh, and they spoke to me like I was a peer and, you know, accepted me, you know, just socially. And partly that's why I ended up in Edmonton. I just showed up for a show and never left. Now, that's amazing. And then I remember we were talking, there was a turning point. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got a certain way in my music career. And, and you know, I was performing professionally. I ended up getting signed to a label out of Seattle. Um, they were encouraging me to take this thing seriously. And, to, you know, I'd have to move to Seattle. And I was also on the side doing all this digital and web work that was kind of paying the bills because music was not consistent enough to, to, to even pay my tiny rent at that time. And so I started seeing that, you know, these two opportunities are growing. Um, and I was having some success in music, but I wasn't quite, you know, I, I was like, I was swimming with the waves, but I wasn't quite surfing. Like, I wasn't quite having the opportunity that I wanted. Um, and I can remember I had this great conversation, uh, a, a woman who's, I think, still the artistic director of the Calgary Folk Fest, lovely person, and I, she gave me this enormous gift. And they said, you know, hey, um, Carrie, what? Just so I understand, we were at a party together. I said, just, I haven't applied for your festival, but what would it take for me to apply to your festival and actually get in? Like, could a guy like me ever expect to have that happen? What would I have to do in my career for you to hire me? I'm just asking for honest feedback. She said, you know, I like your music. I think what you do is great. She said, but I'll be honest, you're a white male with a guitar singing songs about his feelings, which is half of every applicant I get. And she said, you know, you're just like so many other people, and I could hire Stephen Fearing or like Bruce Coburn over you, and they would be a draw. She said, so for me, the math is you have to find some way to be different. She said, if you became a Zydeco band, I'd hire you in a second, you know, sort of joking. And I realized, you know, I'm just doing a thing that's not that unusual. It's not that different. It's not that unique. And the odds that I'm going to succeed are probably not that high. Like the songs I would have to write would have to be so much better than the songs I'm writing today to stand out that I might get there. You know, I might get there. Um, and I had this label in Seattle saying, like, if you move down here, you know, we can't pay you, but we can put you up. We can get you a band. We can send you on tour. You know, they had this offer. And it was a pretty great offer, you know, from a label that was doing really well. Um, but I looked at it and I weighed it and I thought, you know, I like music. I love it, but it's, it's a grind of an industry. I'm going to have to commit to 10 to 15 years of poverty if I'm going to finally get to a point where I could actually succeed or I'm going to have to get lucky. And then over here, you know, I'm in Edmonton. I, I like this city. I, you know, I had become a resident of Edmonton at that point. I was, you know, I, I liked being in the city. I had friends. I had peer group. I had a network. And I was doing this digital and web work, and it was also starting to take off. You know, I was getting, we were getting more interesting projects. We were starting to get taken seriously as a company. Uh, we were sort of on the radar. And I thought, you know what? Math says this is a better investment, you know, in terms of building a career, in terms of being a functional adult in society, it's more likely that I'm going to succeed. And it also didn't feel like I had to give up music. Music could still continue. I continued to play music and record albums. And, you know, I just wasn't trying to make that my vocation, you know, mm. my full-time job. I wasn't trying to do it as my profession. Um, I chose web and digital for that. Maybe I, maybe I chickened out. Maybe I chickened out of music. But I don't feel now like I've compromised my life. Like I don't feel like I took the lesser option 
because I still get to play music. And Ben Sir has just called me the other day to book me into the Works Festival. So, look, my, my original advocate is still helping me to get Planted gigs. that seed. Totally, yeah. So when you were making that decision, what, what was your, your family or friends saying at the time? How were you using I, those networks? I didn't have a lot of people to talk to at the time. Yeah. You know, I was, I was here in Edmonton. I had a brother living in town. We were doing some work together at that point. Most of my friends are musicians who actually said, why would you stop doing music? You know, like, why would you walk away from this um, to go get a job or, you know, start a business? Um, and I didn't have a lot of contacts or, or network in the business community. I, that's not where I'd come from. I, I sort of stumbled into it accidentally. Um, so I didn't really have a lot of people to consult with. I just had to make the decision on my own. Yeah. So, you know, at, at that point, I, I, was, I didn't have the kind of community on the business side that I have today. You said the math was yeah. better. You did the math. I did the math. I was like, what are the odds that I'm going to become successful as a musician? How much money would I need to make? What would I need to look like? How many years would I need to tour and play and perform? How much debt am I going to go into? How how few relationships will I be able to sustain? How will it be like living in the upstairs closet of a recording studio in Seattle or in Tacoma? You know, like, what is my life going to be like for like a decade while I slowly try and grind through and build this career and write better songs and make better records and get to a point where the art I'm making is really worthy of listening to or, or is, is wanted by a lot of people. I really hone that craft. Um, and it just felt like, you know, plus some of the feedback I was getting of like, you're just, you know, I was like a lot of other people, you know, and I wasn't doing anything yet that had really, I didn't have a unique voice yet. It wasn't something that I was doing that was so different or special that it really stood out from the crowd. I was getting, you know, good critical review and like getting some radio play. And also there wasn't sort of a bigger momentum happening, which made me realize I need to get better. You know, I need to be better. I need to write better. I need to perform better. You know, I need to continue to practice like my junior high trumpet (laughs) and banjo. So it could still happen. Yeah. But so there's some amount of work to do before I really felt like I would be doing something that was at a level where I thought I could be commercially successful, you know, making a living, having a career. Whereas with the, the web work, people were just showing up with paychecks, saying, we need this done. There was, there was a demand for what I was doing at that, at that level, and people were hungry for it and, and said, yeah, we need more people who can do this kind of work. And I started to build a team, and it was starting to grow. And so just looking at those two things, one was a long, slow road with a lot of uncertainty, and one was a very certain immediate road where I could start to work immediately. And... You know, then that was 23 years ago. You know, mm-hmm. I, I started down this path, and, and it's been good. I, maybe, maybe this road wasn't faster than I thought, but, um, but it certainly started with, with uh, more advantage than the other road. Was that practice of looking at something objectively, and, like, that to me is, like, super brave to, like, actually look at something and be like, let me use my brain and rationally look at what I, what I want to do at the core of music what it looks like I can do in this industry, have a separation of those two, and then see, like, will it work? Like, what? And you weigh that. Was that something that's always come naturally to you? No, I'm really impulsive normally. Really? Yeah, it's, it, this is a rare moment where I probably made a good career decision, huh. objectively, um, something that turned out to be good for me. Um, I, I'm really impulsive. But it's managing my impulsivity is one of the business skills that I've learned. You know, and recognizing who I am, surrounding myself by people who provide good sober second thought for me or good counterbalance or um, who, who play a good devil's advocate. You know, I've realized who I need to be surrounded with to be effective at what I do um, 
it's not about stopping who you are or fixing who you are. It's about finding balance with, with a team, with a community. Um, that's what's more important. Where does um, your, f- your family friend who you get coffees with in the federal oh. government come in? Yeah, I've had, I've had a number of key people who have come into my life who have helped me to shape my thinking. Yeah. You know? And I think that's the important thing. Like, as a human being, realizing that you are forever or hopefully are forever on a journey of cognitive development, learning to be able to think about different problems, leveling up your ability to think about things is the journey of the human animal, right? Um, we have these cognitive powers. I don't know that I'm necessarily smarter than a dolphin. Maybe we'll find later that they are, but just at least it's a thing about that is differentiating about our, our species is we have the ability to advance our cognitive abilities. Maybe other species do. We're not totally sure. Um, but this is this thing that we're uniquely able to do is get smarter, be able to think about more challenging things. And the people who come into your life who challenge your thinking, who force you to go, uh, you know, find another gear, you know, think, think about something in a, in a different way, who change your context and your perspective. Those are the people that are, that are gifts and part of your community. So I've had this great sort of relationship with a guy named Daniel Watson, who is a very senior leader in the federal government in Canada. And he is connected to my family through just a variety of different people he knows. And I got to know him. And a couple of times I was brave enough to say, can we just go for coffee? I would just like to pick your brain. And he was generous enough to say yes. Um, and I can remember talking to him about what is, there was a moment in my development where I was struggling with the difference between a leader and a manager and trying to understand what the practice of management looks like versus being a leader. And it was just this, these categories that weren't clearly defined to me. And, and I, I called Daniel. I said, you're somebody who is both. I need you to help me to think about it. And he, we went for coffee and he just told me stories. He told me stories that have become part of the DNA of my thinking. Like they're just built into the way I think now. He gave me this gift of these stories that were his thought process. He was several rungs up the ladder farther than I was in his ability to think about complexity and organizations and leadership and developing people. And he was able to articulate it in these clear stories. Um, and those stories have become part of who I am now. And I'm able to use those to leverage my own thinking, to, to hand things off to other people. Um, and so that was this great gift I was given by somebody who is a deep thinker and a very, very capable leader and is really well respected in the federal government. He's given some of the most challenging portfolios and he always does well with it and, and just this really effective um, person. Um, and so for him to give me, you know, his stories of how he thinks, that's, you know, that's an enormous gift. That's amazing. And, and that to me reminds me of some of the stories you're talking about growing up of your mother being a, a feminist thinker and challenging yeah. you at a young age. Do oh, you think absolutely. that that had a role to play in that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, the finding anything that challenges your thinking is going to be good for you in some way, cognitively at least. Not all things that challenge your thinking are good things, but confronting those things and sort of the, the work you go through because, you know, the, 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 and this is, again, something that's been given to me, so this is not my own thinking. Um, but as I've come to see it and understand it at this point in my development, the way you become a more developed person is you learn to reflect on yourself. You learn to perceive yourself as others perceive you. you know? So who am I? What is the impact of me? How do I show up? What is the experience of working with me, of being in a room with me, of having a conversation with me? And that reflection 
starts to help you see where the rough edges are on your own self and shave those off. Then the next level of detail is, you know, first of all, reflecting on yourself and then learning to perceive yourself in other, in other people's eyes. You know, what am I like? What was that like to work with? How was I in that meeting? Was I constructive? Did I add to the conversation? Did I take away from the conversation? Did I make it all about me? Was I uh, abrupt? Did I shut people off? Did I talk over other people? What was it like to work with me? That's that next level. And then the third level of thinking, you know, that helps you to develop as a person is, you know, this perspective seeking of, I'm going into a meeting and a conversation. I wonder who's going to be in the room. I wonder where they're at in their journey. I wonder what context they bring to this. I wonder who they are. Or as you start to learn people, so-and-so is going to be in the meeting. What is it that I know about them? Who do I need to show up as so that I can get the best possible outcome in this context? And those th three levels of, of, you know, like, first of all, able to reflect on yourself. Second, able to understand yourself in other people's eyes. And then third, trying to get into other people's context so that you can understand them well enough so that when you show up, you amplify who they are. You get the best, the best out of a conversation, the best out of a meeting, the best out of a decision. That's sort of the deepest level. That's the one I struggle with still. And I'm, I'm on a continuous journey. But, you know, this comes down to, like, mindfulness. And, you know, you, you said that... You gave me the compliment, thank you, of, of saying that I, I showed up and I was present in our first meeting. And if I've learned to be present in a meeting, it's because I've gone through the exercises of mindfulness to say, when I show up, it can't be all about me. It has to be about the better moment that comes when two people truly meet and truly have a conversation. You know, so how will I show up? How will I be? How will I act? What, what tone, what attitude, what mental state will I show up with at these meeting, this meeting with these two people that I don't know very well? so that we have a good conversation, so something good comes out of this meeting. That reminds me of what... Uh, <laughs> so early on in my acting career, I was doing um, Evangeline in Charlottetown. It was mm. 2015, and I got to work with um, this actor named Brent Carver, who won a Tony in 1993. Oh, yeah, Brent Carver. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I, I, I was just like... I stopped him in the Confederation Center and I was, hey, hey, Brian, I was, I was wondering, you're like, whatever, like, if you want, can I, do you want to go for a coffee and ask some questions? And he was like, sure. So we went and had a coffee and I was sweating the whole time. Um, but we were talking about, um, <laughs> I think my question to him was, remember when you were at the Tonys singing the song from Parade? What, how was that? And that's what I asked him. But he told me about, like, he learned from his um, acting mentor about the the different levels of presence that you can have as an actor and like mm -hmm. we're told like you have to know what you're saying and you have to know what you've said but yeah. then you have to be aware of what the other person's saying and what they said and where brent started pointing my attention was you also have to know who you are in that moment on the stage as just hunter mm -hmm. and what's going on in your life at that moment in time based off of what you see that the other person is doing, the other person as the actor, how they're acting, and you bring in all of the stuff that comes with you when you enter the rehearsal hall, when you go on stage, and that brings that level of nuanced presence. And it's not like you leave it at the door and then you're kind of like half a human on stage. I, I, love, I love talking to the actors about this because this is the craft that you are, you are trained in as an actor, just being present being the person you need to be at a moment. Now, not to suggest that that sense of presence um, is an act. You know, it's a, it's a falsehood or it's a, I'm choosing to pretend to be something that I'm not. But it's, it's managing the person you actually are because a great actor is 100% themselves 
and 100% the character that they need to be at that moment. Both things are true. And I think both things can be true. And I don't think it's a falsehood. I think the great actors bring themselves into that moment and are truly themselves. They are truly that funny. They are truly that whatever. And, and um, I think that that skill, like actors have this unfair advantage of, they get to spend, you know, if you go to, to school and you study. Spend years rolling on the ground. You spend years learning. Breathing. To, I know, <laughs> yeah. you know, absolutely. You know, who, what is my body? How do I show up? How do I stand? What is my physical posture? What is my energy I'm giving? How are other people reacting to me? And you get all this feedback and you get all this. I think everyone should go through some of this, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that's why improvisation training is so popular in a corporate environment. It's just a little bit of acting training. Hey, you said that. How do you think that made the other person feel? That sure shut down the conversation, didn't it? You know, th- those are the baby steps of, of just learning to be a present human being and learning to be part of the conversation. But we don't teach ourselves that as a society. You know, if you mm. want to learn that, you have to do it on your own, unless you get to be an actor. <laughs> and then, then they teach you a lot of that. But, um, you know, some, I, I probably have some, some advantage of having done a lot of stage performance and, like, music. Uh, that probably taught me some things about getting comfortable with myself in front of people, you know, quieting down the inner voice, getting calm, getting sure of myself, making that courageous decision to stand in front of a mic and and do something that not everybody does. Um, I probably learned some things there that have helped me in business, but, but really where I've honed my ability to be an effective collaborator, conversationalist, anything else is just the the long, slow practice of, of doing it, but while being reflective, but while considering myself, Thinking after the fact, how did I show up? How did that go? Did I talk too much? Did I talk too fast? Did I talk over somebody? Um, how will I do that next time? It's just practicing being a, a, a human. Who taught you that? Oh, so many people. Yeah. You know, so many people, yeah. Um, not one person. Um, it could also be a thing, too. Like. Yeah, yeah. It. I don't know. It's not something that I was – I don't think I was – born with it. I don't think I have some innate ability to do this. It did take work and I did have to practice it. I, I have some, uh, I have some coaches, um, a, a husband and wife team um, who, who uh, are here in Edmonton who work with executives in various organizations and they're big on like mindfulness and, you know, neurocognitive development and all of these things. And I'm, I'm lucky to have them in my life because they've taught me so much about these ideas of like reflection and presence and mindfulness and and recognizing that that's actually one of the most important things to cultivate in business because if you have a team full of people who are all present, who are all aware of themselves, who are all functioning together, imagine working with that team. You know? like that's, that's just a better team. You're, you're most likely going to get better results. So those are some of the things we talk about at, at work. You know, that these are the kinds of conversations we have at work. How are we going to show up? What do clients need from us? How do they need us to show up? What kinds of attitudes can we have? How are you as a team going to work together in a better way? You know, these kinds of conversations are really critical to becoming the kind of humans we need to be to do the work that we need to do. How do you manage this idea? And maybe you, you don't necessarily have to, but one thing that I know that I struggle with is how you admit that you're not sufficient to do a thing or that you are really vulnerable and you have to develop that. And that uh, it, it Admission sounds weird because it, it puts it in a weird frame yeah. of like, what are you admitting? <laughs> but you know, how do you how do you admit and look at that insufficiency compassionately? And where did that come from? Because what I see is you're you're able to talk about you know, did I do this? And it's it's that question. It's not yeah. you angrily saying to yourself, how could I have done this? Yeah. You know, where where did that come from? And and how did you cultivate that when you're 
you know, you started a business and then you started growing it. So it's yeah. across the country. I've been, I have the, the advantage of time. I've been doing this for a while, you know, 23 years now. Started in 96, it's 2019. So, you know, over time, I, I have improved incrementally each year <laughs> at all of this. Um, but also, you start to see others who are in the space and you start to realize most people are faking it to some degree. Most people don't know. A lot of people put up a lot of bravado and bluster. And as I looked at, you know, and I've had this great opportunity to vastly increase my community over the years. I know most of the owners of most of the medium-sized digital agencies in all of North America. Um, just because I go to conferences and events and I'm part of industry groups, and you slowly start to meet people, and I start to realize oh, almost everybody is like me and is, is, has made this up on their own. No one really knows what it looks like, what it's good. I see a handful of people who have truly mastered this. And I can learn from them, and I can realize that they're, you know, one out of 10, maybe one out of 20 of people who do what I do in this industry. And most of us are really struggling to understand the work, to understand the marketing, to understand, you know, what does really good look like. And initially, there's a great relief in that. You know, it's, oh, I'm not alone. You know, I'm not alone in not totally understanding what I'm doing, not totally understanding how this works, not totally understanding how to grow a team, how to do the best work, because it's complex. And there isn't one way. You know, complexity means there are many ways we can do something, and, and there is no one clear bet. You have to just pay attention and be careful and proceed and continually measure and course correct. You know, that's, that's what complexity means. Um, it's just the work is harder. Um, and that's the nature of what we do. We do complex, challenging, technical, human-oriented work where there isn't one clear right way to do it, and we have to negotiate that as a, as a group of people, and that, that's the business we run. Um, so there's this great freedom um, that came from realizing most people like me don't totally have this solved. Um, and that allowed me to forgive myself for being just like most people. But then I started looking at the people who had solved it and who were really thriving, who just had it right. And I was like, well, what are they doing differently? What are they doing differently? Um, and I've, had, I've, just, I've been fortunate to have opportunities to observe some really, really, really talented people um, who have run really successful businesses and who got it right. Some of them did it through, you know, just being better at selling and convincing people. You know, that, that's, that's possible. Um, but most of them did it through really the discipline of, of building a, a system and, and, and processes and understanding a market and doing something different and, and unique that was of high value, paying attention to customers. So I started to look at that and realized, well, that, that's the craft of building a business is, is, you know, like voice a customer, you know, your people, your processes, and what is the product you're offering at the end of the day? You know, it's, it's a bit of a platitude, people, process, product. But as you get closer and closer to it, you realize that's what most businesses are. You know, we have a thing that we sell, we have a way that we do it, and we have people that know how to do it. Um, and it seems simple, but it's, re it's remarkably complex to get there and to get that clarity of what those things are and how you're going to enter the world differently from other people and provide that. It, it just takes a long time. It took me almost 20 years to understand that. I'm just finally seeing what our company needs to be in the world, where we add value to the world. And now I'm like, oh, no, I see what needs to be different in the world. I see how we're going to add to the world. I see why we're necessary, and I see who needs us. You know, I, I now understand that, and that makes my job that much easier. But the me of five years ago didn't even have the cognitive ability to think that in that way. 
I, I, you know, you build it over time, and then you get to a point where it starts to become clear. You can't, you can't see up the ladder. You can only see down the ladder. You know, we, the higher rungs, you can't even imagine them yet because you don't understand them until you get to them. Um, so these things just do take some time, some time for the brain to grow and for your understanding to grow and your experience to grow. Um, you know, one could argue that the problem with Facebook was that Mark Zuckerberg had too much success too fast, you know, and it just, everything worked, and it worked so well, and it kept working well to the point where as Facebook kind of finally reached its maturity as a product, we all looked at it and realized, I don't know if we want that. It's, maybe it's not good for us, you know. It's like this kind of refined sugar that's, delicious and everyone puts into all the soft drinks and eventually we realize but is it good for us is it good for us does it help us you know um so you know i've, I've had the fortune a lot of time of not being super successful to learn what i really want to do and what i really want to contribute you know i think the slow the slow method has been better for me mm-hmm. um i now understand without having broken a lot of things um what we're going to do. You know, it just, it just took a lot of time. The people on the outside who aren't in your industry um, but are in your life, in your yeah. inner circle, how have they helped you? In, in what ways has that looked like? You know, it could be oh, family, it could be friends. Yeah. yeah. So my parents have continued to be great mentors to me. You know, and when I have complex people problems, they're, they're great people to go to. I've got other business leaders who are some in tech and some not who I've talked to about running a business. I'm at a point now where I can talk to anybody who runs, almost anybody who runs a business and find common ground, you know, like, like managing people, dealing with cash flow, just all these everyday nuts and bolts of running a business. You can always find common ground. And sometimes you'll find somebody who's really thrived, who's a leader, and they've gotten some insight about how to do it in a better way. And you can always have conversations and pull dialogue back. You know, I talked about Daniel Watson, who's, you know, he's in government, he's a leader, but he just taught me things about people and about systems and about accountability that are lessons I still carry with me to this day. He doesn't do what I do. I don't do what he does. Um, but we've learned from each other. And, you know, my, my lawyer has been a great mentor to me. I've got a corporate lawyer who helps with the contracts and incorporation and things. But he's also just a really smart guy. You know, and he's, he's a really wise person. And he's, he's given me insight. Um, I've, I've got an accountant who's just really, really good at thinking unemotionally about the numbers in my business. And every single time I talk to him, I learned something about how to think in a more precise way about the finances of the business because I get clouded about the vision and the emotion, the people and the opportunity. And he forces me to get really real and say, at the end of the day, if you don't have money in a bank, you can't do any of those things. So how do we get you to have more money in the bank? (laughs) (laughs) And just make better decisions and, you know, how you're going to pay yourself and compensate and manage taxes and all these things. You know, it's very, very pragmatic lessons. And, you know, it's, it's not a kind of thinking that comes naturally to me. So I've needed his help to help shape my thinking and to help me focus on the things that are important about finances in the business. Um, I ran the business for many years with my brother, uh, David, and, and he recently departed to try some new things. He just wanted a new adventure in life. I've learned so much from him over the years. He was a great foil to me because we're very similar and yet also quite different in some very key ways, sometimes which led to conflict, sometimes which led to growth for me, or I assume growth for him, but I'll let him speak to that. I just don't want to personally claim his growth. (laughs) He has grown. I didn't mean that as a backhanded compliment to him. I think it's a a self-effacing comment about myself. Um, But um, I just, brothers and sisters, as you would know, are complicated relationships to work in. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're actually perfect. (laughs) In in a way they are, and in a way they're just not. Yeah. Because it's it's too real. It's too personal sometimes. So, you know, I'm really interested in that, like the the family and how, Mm -hmm. how you've, there's that idea of, um, and my sister and I always return to this in our business, like 
she is her and I am me and mm -hmm. you know we, we should never try to be the same thing yep um, <laughs> though I try really hard and I can't <laughs> spoiler alert I'm not her but um, there's this idea with um, I think it's like waves propagating um, each other through mm. a vacuum yeah like that's how they travel it's they, they, there's waves yeah. that kind of propagate each other um, and I'm curious how you and your brother did that and it, it could also be on like a, a small level it doesn't have to be business related but what did that support look like? Well, you know, the, the, the thing that was and continues to be true about my relationship with my brother is absolute trust in who he is and his integrity, you know. So there was never a point, I think for either of us, um, where we ever had to worry that the other person wasn't going to act with integrity in a, in a situation. Um, and there's a built-in accountability there, too. You know, so if there is a moment of there's a shortcut I could take here or the client seems willing to pay this bill even though we didn't totally finish everything. They seemed happy with the work. Maybe there's a, you know, did we really do the thing? Um, there's all these ways, you know, these, these opportunities to cheat that show up or to take shortcuts that show up in work. Um, but I knew I would have to talk to my brother about it. And I knew that we would both be have unease if we ever didn't do the right thing in the right way didn't have integrity in our billing and how we, you know, I knew that there would be that, that moment of integrity. So for, for me, there was always, now it's just built in, you know, it's just part of my DNA now. I can't not operate with integrity in business. Um, but I think that came from just many years of somebody to whom I was accountable, who I'd have to look in the eyes at the end of the day. And I, I couldn't do it if I didn't act with integrity because that was a core value that we both shared. And he helped me to reinforce and build that. I guess, you know, that was that, that, that wave that was, you know, that, that propagation. Um, so I think that's probably the thing. I mean, he might have a very different perspective on this. Um, but I think that's probably the thing that I, that I received from being in that working relationship with him over the years. You just couldn't look each other in the eye if you didn't act with integrity on every project, on every invoice, on every piece of work you ship. You know, it had to be the right thing in the right way. And you had to respect money and respect the client's money. You know, this was sort of a sacred exchange between two people. I'm going to do some work. You're going to pay me for that work. Um, and there's going to be value in what we ship, and we're not going to take shortcuts. You know, we're going to do the right thing in the right way for you. Um, and so that was that was just, you know, it's, it's part of the DNA of our business today. It's part of how I operate. I don't even think about it anymore. I probably don't always get it right. I'm probably not always aware of where there could be more integrity in the way I work. So I don't mean to claim I'm some sort of, I've evolved and I'm some sort of saint in that, but, you know, it's important and it's a value. It's a thing that I value. Uh, I like to sleep at night knowing I, I did the best thing that I could. Um, and and I, I don't really ever worry about the honesty of my business at this point. And that's, that's been a great gift from working with my brother for so many years. Second last question. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about that initial idea that kind of launched you of yep. wanting to make something that fills that need yep. um, that people want, where did that come from? Because it sounds like that yeah. was there pretty early on. Was that something that's always been there? Was that something that you learned? Probably, it would probably be unfair of me to say that it wasn't always there to some degree. Because I always, you know, back when I was a musician, I just, why did I decide to write songs instead of just playing other people's songs? I don't know. I just wanted to make my own. I just wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to, I wanted to see what I could do. Um, so there's probably a spark in there, but it was absolutely honed over the years and and you go up in levels about what you're trying to create 
you know, there was a time when I was most interested in the work that I was doing in the business, you know, like, like the design work I was doing or the, what I was writing or how I was helping to lead a client forward or build a strategy. Now I'm way more interested in my people and what they're doing. You know, like how can I create a system in which they can do that? And so my maker instinct goes into systems and processes and, and personal development. I'm interested in how they can succeed because that's actually the multiplier of what I do now. You know, mm. that's just a, it, it's a lever that lets me do more. But also it's not really about me anymore. You know, I, I recognize I don't want my business to be a cult of personality. I want it to be something that really works in the world and that thrives, even if for some reason I'm unable to be there or I choose not to be there or, or whatever could happen. Like I, I want to create something that has some permanence to it, that, that is bigger than just my own influence, which means all my time goes into investing in other people now. You know, so I don't, I don't know, like, why, why did I choose to make things? Why do I keep doing that? Why do I keep my personality, you know, just sort of my personality type. If I take any kind of personality test, I'm like a, a seven on the Enneagram, I'm like a D on the disc. I'm like E-N, I think ENTP, E-N-T-P. Yeah. Am I that? Anyway, whatever, whatever the, the debater type in Myers-Briggs. Oh, yeah. So, you know, whenever I go do a test, it's like, yeah, you're the kind of person that likes to invent stuff and make stuff up and improvise. That's just who you are. So it's, it seems obvious to me, but it seems obvious to me that, I, that a person would do that. And it isn't obvious to everybody else. So I guess you should celebrate that as something that is, to some degree, unique about me or I'm part of a unique type of person that likes to do this more than other types of people. But I'm also uh, I'm constantly humbled by the fact that when I try and do it in isolation, it doesn't go very well. When I try and do it in community and collaboratively with others, it goes much better. When I surround myself with the right people, they're the multiplier of what I do and, and me on my own, not super effective. Um, you know, my songs haven't made me rich, but it was sure fun to play in a band. You know, the work I did on my own didn't make me rich, but my company is thriving because I'm surrounded by capable people that, that are able to do that. And that extends out beyond the company into the community. You know, um, anytime you contribute to the community, I find that the waves come back to you. You know, there's echoes and, 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 it, and it builds. And, and it's, just, it's just enjoyable for me to collaborate with others. You know, I'm just I'm just interested in fundamentally in working with other people and working collaboratively with others. That's that's where I feel most at home, where I feel most comfortable. So I think I, I just do it naturally and not because there's some virtue I have that makes me better than other people. I don't know. I just I just can't help it. And on that note of home, the last question is how has your family changed the way you approach things? You know, I can talk about that. So I've talked about my parents. I've talked about one of my siblings, my brother. Um, but my own, so I'm married now and I, I have a daughter who just turned five. Um, so my immediate family, which is now the family I'm building, this new place, has, it's been a profound impact. Becoming a parent has become a profound impact because I've learned that I need to be conscious about all the decisions that I make at every level because someone's watching. <laughs> And because I actually need to understand what is important enough in the world to me that I want to pass it on. You know, what are the things, how do I want to reflect the world as it should be to my daughter? And I'm a very imperfect parent as every parent are. I'm, and it is this, it is the great crucible of mindfulness being a parent because it's a chaotic relationship and it's a complex relationship. And these little people, if you just took a toddler and stretched them to a six-foot person and gave them the full weight of a, of a regular human, 
they would kill you. They would they would smash your head in. They're just they're these wild, emotional, uncontrolled, unrestrained little beings that will just swing at you and do whatever. You know, like they would they would kill you if they were life size, if they were full size adults. But they're these little people that don't understand anything about who they are yet and are just growing and experiencing. And it's your job to try and in any way kind of herd that the cats of their own emotional lives and try to help them to find their way forward and help create a, an, an ethical context for them to live in. And, and it just means you just need to be really reflective of who you are and who you want to be in, in the world because they're watching everything and everything you do, you see it come back. If I'm, if I'm rude to my partner one day, my daughter is rude to my partner and that's unacceptable to me. And I realize eh, she just watched me do it, you know, or if I'm dismissive of, of somebody and she becomes dismissive of somebody, I realized I gave her permission to do that, you know. So you need to discern, determine who you're going to be in the world and you need to model what you want to be. And that's maybe a better leader in the company, I think, you know. And I also realized there's only so much you can do. You know, there are limits to what one person can influence. You know, like I can't be all things to my daughter. I'm not always there. And so I have to decide in the one or two hours a day I get to have meaningful impact and shape who she is, um, some days more, some days less, how am I going to spend that time? What am I going to do? You know, and then with my team, I can't do everything. So I get limited amounts of time with people um, and there's limits to what I can do because, you know, I, I get tired. I, I only know so much. How can I impact people in the best possible way? So I guess it's taught me a lot about economy, you know, and uh, like making choices and, 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 and being frugal with my time um, and, and just trying to invest at the right time in, in other people. And, and um, that's, I think, the lesson that my own family has taught me. You know, time is precious and, and, and treat it with respect and, and spend it wisely. Stop doing the things that aren't adding value. Stop doing the things you don't want to be known for. Um, just pick fewer things and do them better. Thanks so much to Hunter Cardinal for getting this special series off to a great start. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And if you have an extra minute, please share this episode with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help new listeners find us. We're also on Facebook too, so be sure to follow us there. Thanks for hanging out with us. I've been your host, Andrew Paul. Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.